Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 223. Before we start, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Dennis Miracle for liking The Week in Doubt Facebook page. I was half tempted to make a joke about an atheist with the last name Miracle, but if that is in fact Dennis's uh, birth name, then he's probably already had his fill of bad and annoying Miracle jokes. But actually, uh, it's probably a little presumptuous of me to just assume that Dennis is an atheist. After all, it's a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. People never really made fun of my last name growing up. They just more often than not got it wrong. Every damn year, at least one teacher would end up calling me Albert while taking attendance the first day. I was always like, really? The comma separating the last name Albertelli from the first name Philip means nothing to you? And you're supposed to be the teacher. And my friends, many to this day, because of the New England habit of not rounding off our R's, uh, call me Abatelli. Hey, Abatelli. I don't really mind. I've learned to view it affectionately. Um, at least I have friends to mispronounce my name, right? Silver linings. But anyway, on with the show. So I've been receiving some feedback in response to that recent episode I did regarding Sam Harris's clash with psychology professor Jordan Peterson over the nature of truth. Although somewhat critical, I have to say I was pleasantly surprised and relieved by just how civil and good-natured Peterson supporters have been. If you recall, although I'd like to think I tried my best to be fair, it was quite obvious that I leaned strongly towards Sam Harris's side of the argument, to say the least. So uh, maybe I'll read a couple of examples. Here's one from YouTube. And it looks like the person's name or YouTube handle is Craig Callens or Kalenzi, probably butchering that. Respectfully, you may want to watch, listen to some of Peterson's lectures. You may find some of what he offers enlightening. And I replied simply by saying, hi, Craig. Thanks for the comment. I appreciate the sentiment. I'll definitely check out some of Peterson's content. And uh, they replied back. I appreciate the response. The conversation has frustrated me, too. I've wondered why uh, it looks like he's saying that he's summing it up to keep things simple while he sorts it out. And then he compares the conversation to two very good chess players who play for two hours, 15 minutes, and 42 seconds while not moving that many pieces on the board and kind of leaving it a stalemate. I'm hoping these guys revisit their conversation and cover some more ground. And then I replied yet again, Hi, Craig, I watched some of Peterson's content since our last exchange. My respect for him has definitely grown. The first thing I watched was an interview with him on religion, myth, and science. The second was one of his lectures on existentialism. Although I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around his definition of truth, I'm absolutely fascinated by his take on things like myth slash symbolism and psychology. Kind of strange how he's been thrust into the spotlight due to his stance on social justice and political correctness when he has so much more to offer. Yeah, and that is true. Uh, YouTube is so inundated right now with anti-so-called SJW content that when I first started to see uh, Peterson being interviewed on the topic and when I saw people like Sargon kind of covering him, putting him up on a pedestal, etc., 
I was thinking, yeah, or I agree with the guy on some stuff. Uh, I don't like thought and speech police either. Um, I don't like when people are overly politically correct. But I found it all tedious and boring and listening to him on the subject. My eyes would kind of glaze over because I've pretty much had my fill of uh, of the topic. And, and so admittedly, and hopefully it doesn't sound too disrespectful, I wasn't all that impressed by him. But now that I've watched his lectures and listened to him talk about psychology, philosophy, mythology, etc., I have to say, I'm actually, I am blown away. I don't agree with the guy on everything, but my respect for him really has deepened tremendously. And I've actually been binge watching his lectures uh, recently and his knowledge and his take on things like mythology, philosophy, and symbolism. It's so deep and rich. I think it is a shame in a way that, uh, although I, I think he was fairly well known prior to becoming an outspoken opponent of, of uh, kind of political correctness on college campuses, etc. I think at least on YouTube, the thing that quickly elevated him to almost rock star status was his take on things like political correctness on college campuses, gender pronouns, etc. And I think in a way that is kind of a shame that that's what he's quickly become famous for, at least among young people online, uh, when he has all this uh, other stuff uh, to offer, this depth of knowledge on these really fascinating and important topics. But I, I probably shouldn't get too overly dramatic about it because I, I think maybe this will open a door for people to his work on those other topics. I'm sure a lot of people who maybe heard about him through Sargon of Akkad or whatever uh, probably will go on, have or will go on to watch some of his lectures on this weightier stuff. And uh, I think that's a good thing. And hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm trying to dismiss the importance of fighting for free speech and combating people who are overzealous when it comes to political correctness and things like that. Because I think that stuff is important. But as I said uh, maybe an episode or two ago, that's personally not really where my passion lies what really kind of turns me on is talking about religion, atheism, uh, philosophy, wrestling with life's big existential questions. Hopefully that doesn't sound too pretentious, but that is the stuff that uh, probably since I was a kid has really captured my attention and, ig and ignited a kind of passion in me, at least generally speaking, you know, kind of wrestling with uh, life's big questions. That's something I've been doing for almost as long as I can remember. Um, but I'm sure as a kid, I, I wasn't uh, even cognizant of terms like atheism or existentialism. Then here's a, a thread between myself and someone named Mike Oxenrider <laughs> on Twitter. 
Uh, and we actually had a pretty pleasant exchange. And uh, Oxenrider, that that can't is that a real name? Mike Oxenrider. I feel bad giving these people's names out. Uh, I don't know if it's the right or wrong thing to do. Um, but since I'm talking about them favorably, hopefully it doesn't matter and they may even get a kick out of it. And Oxenrider, uh, for some reason that reminds me of, uh, no, that's not Skyrim. Here's where I show my, uh, nerdy video game enthusiast, uh, side. I think it was the video game Dragon's Dogma when there are these kind of shaggy, ox-like creatures throughout the countryside and your character could climb on their backs and just kind of enjoy a leisurely uh, ride. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Mike Oxenrider says, I wanted to let you know that you're falling under the same error that Sam Harris is. I enjoyed the podcast, but Harris's to philosophy as Dr. Phil is to psychology. Yeah, you have more inquiry left. I hope you feel better with health. And I think... Um, that refers to how I went on probably for almost five minutes at the beginning of that episode talking about <laughs> a, a kind of grueling uh, bout uh, of gastroenteritis. I almost butchered it again. Of gastroenteritis that I had been dealing with. And uh, I was so sick, I was almost delirious, but I still managed to crank out that episode and in fact, for the YouTube version of that episode, I cut off like the first five minutes because I've noticed that YouTube viewers tend to have a much shorter attention span or um, a much smaller degree of patience than podcasters. Generally, it seems, or, or podcast listeners, I should say, generally, it seems like people who are podcast enthusiasts like the longer episodes. People on YouTube prefer things that are kind of punchier and, and more concise. And uh, I figured people on YouTube would have less patience for listening to me drone on about my uh, medical problems. So uh, I did cut that part out for the YouTube version. And I can't find my replies, but I, I offered some kind of polite reply to Mike and he replied by saying, it sounded harsher than I meant. I've been on a Rorty Deleuze bender recently. Um, don't know Peterson, but recognize the argument. But I like Mike. I like the cut of his jib, so I followed him on Twitter. And so I like to think that a cornerstone of this show, hopefully, is a devotion to intellectual honesty. And I try to never let my pride take precedence over the truth. So I did think it was important to go back and further research Jordan Peterson's work and, and try to really suss out where his definition of truth comes from, uh, what it's built on. And as you can probably tell, by going back and, and kind of watching some of his lectures or consuming some of his online content, you, you can probably tell my opinion of him has already drastically changed. Uh, my respect for him has definitely grown. And yet, when it comes to his definition of the truth, even though I now feel like I have more insight into what's behind it, I, I still nevertheless have some of the same issues with it uh, 
that I expressed during that initial episode where I covered his kind of clash, clash is probably too strong a word, with Sam Harris on the matter. But I've uh, kind of isolated a bunch of little clips that uh, I'm going to play, and then I'll comment on them as we go along. So here's the first one, and it's from one of his lectures on existentialism. So Nietzsche said, well, as the modern world suffers through the contradiction between scientific rationality and ritual religion, historically conditioned, the consequence of that is going to be that two pathologies will emerge. One is reliance on totalitarianism. And so I would say, to the degree that any of you are ideological, then you've succumbed to the one pole of, of post-religious pathology. And all you've done is replace adherence to one set of beliefs, even though religious beliefs are not precisely beliefs, with another that's rationally constructed and incredibly dangerous. He said, well, if it isn't going to be totalitarianism, it's going to be nihilism. But the thing that's so interesting about the existentialists is they make a forthright claim that regardless of whether or not the fact that people will turn to those alternatives is a rational, can be rationalized, it makes sense that it would happen it's still pathological, it's like, a, it's a, it's like an a priori statement so I could say, well, let's say you're nihilistic you know, you, you lack, you have a lot of doubt about life's meaning and purpose, and it's like it's eating at you, it's, it's, it's a disease of the soul and you come to me and you tell me 30 logical reasons why what you say has to be true and I would say, those are excellent logical reasons and you're making a very powerful argument but, it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant the fact that you're nihilistic means that you're infected with a pathology and whether or not you can justify it rationally is completely irrelevant all it means is that your rational mind is capable of spinning off a sequence of logical tricks and the ultimate truth is, it's undermining your ability to live and so it's wrong so I'll just stop there for a minute and I think he makes a good point in a way that just because a viewpoint might be, or a conclusion might be rational that doesn't mean that it's good and he describes having this kind of nihilistic outlook towards existence as being almost a, a pathology, a sickness of the soul. And in a way, I think that's true. Uh, I'll put soul in quotes because, um, well, I'm a, an atheist, agnostic atheist, so I'm highly doubtful of the existence of an, of an immortal soul. But I think, speaking kind of metaphorically or poetically, uh, I think that nihilistic viewpoint can feel like uh, a kind of like a, a sickness of the soul. And I've spoken a lot in the past on the show about how, not to quote REM, but when I was first kind of losing my religion, um, how I, I went through this, uh, or maybe plural, maybe I think more than one, these kind of dark nights of the soul, where I was actually, you know, very horrified and uh, despairing when confronted with this realization, at least from my point of view, that there very well might not be a god or a higher power or an afterlife 
And uh, when you die, that's it, lights out. And I think I did go through these bouts of, uh, for lack of a better term, soul sickness. And somehow I, I eventually, for the most part, became kind of a nerd to all that. Because uh, I think the human mind is very resilient. And it's kind of amazing what we can get used to or make peace with to some degree. And I've come, I've made peace for the most part with the idea of my own non-existence of, uh, you know, no longer being alive. I'm much more bothered by the thought of people I care deeply about, family and close friends, no longer existing. The idea that these people I love, uh, the animals I love, my pets, you know, I've gone through pet death and all that, that they just get extinguished, like uh, 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 snuffed out like a candle, and that's it. That's something I still wrestle with. But as far as my own mortality goes, you know, I uh, I love that Woody Allen quote. I'm paraphrasing, uh, and I always feel self conscious about quoting Woody Allen in you know in the wake of his kind of sordid scandals. But uh, he said something to the effect that. I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And that's how I feel. I'm much more frightened by the dying process than I am the idea of being dead. You know, the pain, fear, and discomfort that may accompany the dying process, the prospect of that bothers me much more than the idea of non-existence. But I guess this is where I differ with Peterson is that, yeah, um, coming to this rational conclusion that there may not necessarily be some inherent purpose to life, that there may not be a higher power in afterlife, that can be highly unpleasant. And it can feel almost like you've been afflicted with some kind of soul sickness. Um, it can cause a great amount of despair, etc., but does that mean that we should just find a more positive point of view, even if it, 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 because that will make us feel better, even if it's not as rational? And that's where I think my, my kind of personal principles kick in, where I believe in pursuing the truth, no matter how uncomfortable or unpleasant it may turn out to be rather than just trying to placate ourselves with what makes us feel good. And I think Jordan Peterson is also very principled. He's just coming at things from a different place. He also says something to that effect at one point. I don't know if I have that in any of these clips or not, but he also, he thinks that believing in things just because they make you feel good is kind of anathema, which was kind of surprising for me to hear him say that. Um, but I mean, you can say that the human condition, the condition of just being alive is like being afflicted with a pathology. There's a lot of great and wonderful and beautiful things about life, but it's like we're all under a death sentence. Um, it's like we, we've all been afflicted with some terminal illness. We're all going to, you know, this is why I always kind of laugh when people get all worked up about the end of the world and time prophecies and all this crap. I'm like, other than the fact that people have been predicting the end of the world since time immemorial <laughs> or since, you know, religion's been around, 
um, you know, it's like, well, no matter what, we're all going to personally experience our own end of the world eventually. And that's something I've been wrestling with uh, for a long time. So don't try to spook me with all this end times talk. I'm very aware that each one of us is going to kind of have to face our own personal, you know, end of the world, so to speak. So in the way you can say being mortal, in a sense, is a pathology. Um, it's like being um, afflicted with a terminal illness. And... Uh, Realizing these kind of horrible truths, like there may not, not be a God or an afterlife or an inherent purpose to things, that is also like being afflicted with a pathology. But does that mean that it's wrong to embrace those what seem to me to be truths? And like I was alluding to earlier, I think you can face those things and then nevertheless start to become a nerd to it or adjust to it and develop once again a positive outlook on life and you know your own sense of meaning which i like to think is what i have done or what i am doing you know it's still a work in progress i might be strongly doubtful of the existence of an afterlife or a higher power but i still find joy in pursuing my passions, um, in friendship, in art and poetry and music, uh, and the beauty of nature in learning. And you might say, or Jordan Peterson might say, well, all those things are temporary. So, you know, what's the, from your point of view, so what's the point or what's the purpose? And even if it's all temporary or transient out oh, there's still something moving and in, and enjoyable and satisfying about taking part in things here and now and pursuing your passions even if they are all those things are just temporary and you know wiped away like a buddhist mandala at the end of the the end of it all i, I don't know um, and I mean, what's the alternative? Do we just find a corner to sit in and cry or would we all put guns in our mouths? I mean, I think we should try to be positive and enjoy life as, as much as we can while we have it. And there is that little bit of overlap, you know, between agnostic and atheist. I'm not claiming I know for certain there is no God or an afterlife, but that seems to be a conclusion that my reason leads me to. But who knows? Uh, maybe there could be a, a something else out there. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll all, we'll all find out someday. And in the meantime, you know, I think we should try to be good uh, to one another and to ourselves, you know, and try to have fun and, and try to live a meaningful existence, even if we're not certain if there is any inherent meaning. But I think it feels like there is meaning, you know, when you're at least trying to live the life you want to live and you're pursuing things that you're passionate about and uh, engaging things that resonate with you. I think this is kind of an example of Jordan Peterson's Darwinian 
approach to the truth. I remember when I was listening to his interview with Sam Harris, and he kept talking about a Darwinian definition of the truth. And I was like, what the hell is he talking about? Now that I've watched a lot of his lectures, uh, I feel like I have a better grasp at what he means by that. And I think to some degree, I I was able to grasp this a little during his exchange with Sam Harris, too. And it's basically this idea, kind of like uh, biological natural selection, that you keep what's useful and try to get rid of what's not useful or even harmful or detrimental. And so as counterintuitive as it sounds, things that allow you to live a better life that are positive are true. Whereas things that are harmful, maybe like he talks, he talked about that uh, pathology of nihilism, those aren't quote unquote true. So you kind of jettison that kind of thing. And I think that's what he means by this Darwinian approach to truth. But I'm sure as we go through these clips, we'll explore that more. Why is it wrong? I don't care why it's wrong. It's not relevant why it's wrong. What's relevant is you can't live like that. And that's an existential claim. Because the existentialists are interested in a different kind of truth. They would say that a truth you cannot live is not true. Because their definition of truth is different. It's predicated on action. And then the totalitarianism claim is the same thing. So let's say that you're an ardent right-winger, or you're an ardent socialist, or you're an ardent feminist, or an environmentalist, or who cares what the ism is. You've abstracted out a bunch of axioms. You develop a coherent representation of the world, and it's pathological. It doesn't matter what the content is. It's pathological because it's not you. It's not you. If it was you, then a million other people wouldn't believe it. So the existentialist would say, if a million other people believe it, it's definitely false. And they're not talking about scientific claims. That's a whole different, that's a whole different order of, of discussion and description. They're merely making the point that you're an individual thing. And if you've been unable to particularize your experience, and you've replaced that with adherence to some sort of arbitrary and universal call to action or representation, you're pathological. It's a form of mental illness. And you might say, well, what's the evidence for that? Well, what we'll find out in the next lecture is the 20th century was evidence for that. Not so much for the nihilism, nihilism aspect, I think that we're still in for that. Because I think we swung to totalitarianism first, and that didn't work. And so now, you see this in postmodernism, for example, it's an unbelievably nihilistic philosophy. Because it, it claims that all meaning, for example, is reducible to motivations of power. Which is like, intellect, intellectually simplistic beyond belief. So there we see, he's kind of doubling down on the idea that you know, if it's pathological, doesn't matter what the content is, or if it's quote-unquote rational or factual, it's not true. 
And in fairness, there he's speaking as if he's explaining to his students or the audience the existentialist mindset or point of view. But I think, and he'd probably agree with this, that that basically mirrors his own personal philosophy as well, or his own personal outlook. And he just touched on another theme that he speaks about a lot. And and that's truth is revealed through action. That it doesn't matter really what you say you believe. You know, and actions speak louder than words. Truth is revealed through what you do. And I think this is all really confusing because, you know, and he kind of said there, he said something like, he's not talking about scientific facts or truth. That's something different. Um, so the waters become very muddied because most of us probably realize there's these two ways in which people use truth. You know, there's there's the truth as in what's factual. Something either is true or it isn't. Two plus two equals four or it doesn't. But then, and I touched on this before, you know, then there's this more airy-fairy kind of elusive way that people speak about truth. Uh, truth is beauty. Beauty is truth. Higher truths, spiritual truths, um, your own personal truth, you know, find your truth. And that kind of truth can be hard to nail down, I think. And I guess even after listening to all his, not all his lectures, but all the lectures I've listened to thus far uh, or watched, my biggest criticism would be I wish he would do more to articulate the difference between those kinds of truths so we could more quickly grasp at what he's getting at and avoid a lot of this confusion concerning how he's utilizing the word truth. I wish he would more clearly delineate between quote-unquote scientific and factual truth and truth in which the way he's using it and if you listened to that um, interview he did with Sam Harris, so that, that conversation they had, I think no matter how hard Sam pushed him, he still kind of really wouldn't give a clear definition of truth or give a clear and cogent take on what most of us consider to be truth, you know, on uh, factual, empirical truth. It almost seemed like his personal philosophy entails him muddying those waters or blurring that line between these definitions of truth in a way. But oh boy, I can tell this is going to be a long episode. Uh, let's move on to the next clip. And these things aren't grappled with properly by positivistic scientists who have no real training in philosophy and who know nothing at all about religion. You know, their religion, the, the Christianity that Dawkins criticizes, is the Christianity that a smart 13-year-old boy objects to. So it's like, well, you know, how can you reconcile Genesis with evolutionary history? It's like, well, no, that's really not the problem. So it's a straw man argument. All right. So, you know, as an admirer of Richard Dawkins and as someone who shares some of Dawkins' criticisms of religion... This one bothered me a bit, but I'm willing to admit that I think Peterson is partially right and partially 
wrong here. By And what I mean by that is I think there's different ways in which you can interpret religious texts. You can interpret them literally. You can interpret them figuratively. And I've spoken a lot on the show about the difference between figurative and literal interpretation when it comes to religious texts. And uh, one of my favorite theologians or biblical scholars is Dominic Crossan, uh, a former uh, was a former priest or monk. Um, and I always like to quote him uh, something he said in the Frontline documentary series from Jesus to Christ when he was talking about how the writings in the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, should be taken. And he says something to the effect that either the Gospel writers intended the Gospels to be taken literally, and we're so smart, we now know to take them figuratively, or they meant them to be taken figuratively, and we're so dumb, we insist on taking them literally. And he said that he tended to lean towards the latter. Um, that we are, you know, modern people, we're dumb to be insisting that these texts should be taken literally. And don't get me wrong, I think, and I've said this before, I mean, hell, they must have believed in something literally. They at least must have believed in the resurrection literally, or what was it all about, you know? Um, but the gospel writers didn't seem to have any problem with the fact that their gospels conflicted with one another's, or uh, they didn't have any problem using parable and metaphor or symbolism you know, the Gospel of John, Jesus dies on a different day than in the synoptics. There's stories about Jesus's life or ministry, which seem to clearly mirror the stories of the lives of certain biblical patriarchs, etc. The transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, um, the flight into Egypt, um, so I should add the caveat that I don't know if the gospel writers themselves, whoever they were, uh, some people believe they were who the title implies. Other people believe that they're basically anonymous and uh, the titles they bear are basically kind of like dedications or, you know, honorific titles or whatever. Um, but I don't know if the gospel writers minded that, you know, the different accounts uh, differed, um, but certainly the early church fathers didn't seem to mind that they differed. And I think was it Eusebius, and it wasn't during the first Council of Nicaea; it was afterwards. I think Eusebius was ordered by Constantine to compile the books of the Bible, or more specifically, Constantine commissioned Eusebius to create fifty copies of a Greek language Bible, uh, which required him to compile the books of the Bible, decide which ones were in, which ones were out. So obviously the early Christians didn't seem to mind that the Gospels contradicted one another 
or that they seem to employ allegory and metaphor and um, symbolic storytelling, etc. Maybe I shouldn't be so quick to glibly say they didn't mind because there were often feuds between uh, church fathers, etc. But you get my point. So, uh, to, to some degree, people must have understood the figure of nature uh, back then. Uh, and we can even go back to St. Augustine. And already, you know, we have St. Augustine talking about how the days of creation probably weren't meant to be taken as literal 24-hour periods or whatever. Um, you know, if we go to the Old Testament, we go to the Jewish tradition, and uh, I wonder if my friend Randall Nathan Shapiro is listening, maybe he can shed some light on this. But I remember hearing, I think there was some kind of rabbinical tradition, I don't know if it has to do with Midrash or what, but that there were kind of two layers to biblical text. You know, there was a surface layer meant for the kind of lay person, maybe the person who had trouble grasping complex religious quote-unquote truths, that there are the basic stories. Take them at face value, uh, basically take them literally. And then underneath, there's a more symbolic interpretation for the more intellectually or spiritually or theologically sophisticated reader. So there's, you know, those two ways in which the text could be interpreted. And if you go back far enough, I mean, whoever the hell initially wrote Genesis, who authored the creation, you know, the, the, the story of creation, there's two different accounts of creation back to back, what we would call doublets, um, that's the term scholars use for uh, when you have two accounts, two differing accounts of the same event in biblical text. It's called, they're referred to as doublets. So you have two accounts of creation. You have two accounts of the Noah's Ark story of the flood narrative with uh, different amounts of animals uh, involved, etc. Did the people who authored those stories, created them, did they mean for them to be taken literally or figuratively, who the hell knows? We're like really going back into the mists of time with that. And of course, um, the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh predates the biblical flood narrative. It's thought to, the biblical flood narrative is thought to borrow from the epic of Gilgamesh. Did whoever wrote the epic of Gilgamesh, did they think those events were real, were meant to be taken literally? Was it meant to be taken figuratively? Uh, I have no idea, but I wouldn't be so quick to denounce Richard Dawkins' criticisms of religion because whatever those people in antiquity intended, even if they were sophisticated enough themselves to have meant for the text to be taken figuratively, Christians for a very long time now have been taking those stories literally. We've probably all heard about, you know, the disturbing man on the street polls where they ask people, you know, do you uh, literally believe in the miracle events of the Old Testament? Do you literally believe in the flood story, in uh, 
Eve being made from Adam's rib, et cetera, et cetera. And an alarming amount of people do believe that those stories are meant to be taken literally. So I still think people like Dawkins are doing important work by trying to shine a light on the absurdity of taking those stories literally. So Peterson kind of chastises Dawkins for having the theological sophistication of a smart 13-year-old. You know, maybe that's how like a rebellious 13-year-old would perceive religion. But I would say the majority of religious people themselves believe, at least in some of this stuff, literally. It's the academics and the intellectuals who see, you know, the symbolic beauty in it and who realize the figurative value. But anyway, on to the next clip. The dominance hierarchy is actually a major part of the environment to which we have adapted. Okay, so there's the dominance hierarchy, that's, the, we'll say, the social world for the sake of argument. There's the natural world, and there's the experiencing subject. Well, those are Heidegger's categories of being as well. And in, in some sense, what, what religious thinking seems to do is to continually posit those three things as interacting causally at the base of being. So, and that's not material reality. There's a lot of things about being that we can't attribute simply to material reality. We may eventually be able to do that, but by that time, our notion of what constitutes material will be much different. Okay, so we, we can't deal with subjectivity within the confines of our materialist theories. And that's partly because those theories are predicated on the elimination of subjectivity as an a priori move. Right? The whole point of objective science is to remove subjectivity. Okay, so then it gets removed and, well, you're surprised about it. It's like, well, no, you can't be surprised about it. You removed it right at the beginning. Okay, so here, in a sense, I think Peterson's kind of being dismissive about hard, rational, materialist science trying to make any claims on subjectivity, since, you know, subjectivity can't really be pinned down materialistically. And I think he's basically talking about consciousness here, um, that consciousness can't really be pinned down material, uh, materially. And since so much of life is subjective, that science can't really claim to have a, a hold on those, um, those aspects or claim to be able to sufficiently explain subjective experience, that this is stuff that takes place outside the hard materialist scientific model. And I guess I would say, and I'll try to approach this topic with the appropriate degree of humility, because trying to figure out the origins of consciousness. That's something that you know, science is still working on, admittedly. Uh, me being uh, an agnostic atheist, uh, be, being someone who leans towards the materialist worldview, I tend to lean towards the idea of consciousness being an emergent property of the brain. 
meaning basically that consciousness or the mind is a product of the meat brain. Uh, can this be proven? 100% no, but I think logically uh, it makes sense to come to this conclusion when you take into consideration things like, and this kind of goes back to what I was talking about in that episode I did on Graham Hancock, uh, you know, is the brain a receiver of consciousness, you know, like an antenna or, or you know, a TV set, or does it produce consciousness? And so I think when you take in consideration things like when someone is afflicted with a degenerative brain disease, like Alzheimer's or something like that, or if someone acquires a brain injury or, or something, we can often see a link between certain damage or deterioration in certain parts of the brain and certain impairments uh, regarding how someone's able to function or comprehend things. You know, it's almost as if when the brain becomes damaged, we can see corresponding damage, quote unquote, to the personality or, or the mind or self. Damage one part of the brain, you might end up with impulse control issues, facial recognition issues, shorter long-term memory issues, uh, the ability to recognize loved ones, etc., etc. And the only workaround for me seems to be this idea that some posit that perhaps the brain is a receiver for consciousness. Um, you know, you damage a TV or an antenna, as Graham Hancock would say, it might impair the ability of the TV set to properly receive the signal, but the signal is still there. And I guess, you know, destroy the TV set, the signal's still there, and that would be like the equivalent of brain death. And in this analogy, the signal would be consciousness. Um, it's a nice idea. You never know. Uh, but I'm skeptical. To me, that seems much more a matter of speculation than taking what we know about anatomy and neurology and saying, hmm, from what we can tell, it seems like consciousness is an emergent property and that there's a direct link between the meat brain and, you know, the, the quote-unquote self or consciousness. But let's say for the sake of argument that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. In that sense, I think subjectivity, which is a property of consciousness, would therefore fall into the wheelhouse of materialist science. Um, it, it's a scientific uh, neurological phenomenon. Um, I doubt Peterson would agree with that, but it, it seems to make sense to me in a, in a way. Now, that works for certain purposes. It works very well. But it has consequences, and some of those consequences, as far as I'm concerned, are serious enough to produce two forms of social and mental illness. And one of those would be the succumbing to the temptations of authoritarianism, and the other would be succumbing to the temptations of nihilism. Because they're, they're logical consequences of the, of the definition of subjective as non-real. So now then you ask yourself, well, how do you determine whether or not a theory is true? 
then you ask yourself, well, what do you mean by true? Well, then you're in trouble. Okay, because I think you can take a Newtonian perspective on that, or a Darwinian perspective. But you can't do both at the same time. Can you if, elaborate yeah. Okay. So Nietzsche said truth serves life. Okay, in some sense that's a Darwinian idea. Okay, if it's true enough, so that if you act it out or hold it, that increases your chances of survival and reproduction over long spans of time. That's true. Okay. So there he is, obviously, uh, talking once again about his Darwinian notion of truth. That if something's a benefit and can help you survive, or going by what he's said in the past, even if, if it's something that offers you a, a better, a more positive quality of life, then that's true. Or at least true enough, in his words. But if it's harmful or impedes survival, then it's not quote-unquote true. We have no idea if our detailed knowledge about the material world is going to be the type of knowledge that allows us to survive and reproduce over a long period of time. It's not being tested from a Darwinian perspective at all. And you might say, well, of course the materialist perspective is right, look what we've built with it. We've built hydrogen bombs, for example. But then you might object to that by saying, well, yeah, we've built hydrogen bombs, but the only reason we could build them or were willing to was because we left things out of the equation. Well, what things? Well, <laughs> things like, is it really a good idea to build hydrogen bombs, for example? I, I can give you another example of that. Um, I read a book a while back that was written by a KGB officer who claimed to be exposing the inner workings of the Soviet scientific community with regards to uh, biological warfare. And the, the people in the institute that he described were trying to cross Ebola with smallpox. Because smallpox is extremely infectious and Ebola is extremely deadly. So, like, that's a valid scientific uh, enterprise. Okay, then you think, oh, isn't that interesting that that's a valid scientific enterprise? Because obviously that's insane. So then you think, well, if it's so obvious that that's insane and it's a valid scientific enterprise, well, there's some disconnect there between two different views of what constitutes at least appropriate behavior. Now, you know, this is why the definitions of truth start to become so important. It's like, is it truth as expressed in action? Is it truth as it serves Darwinian purposes? Is it truth as defined by the axioms of, material, of, of the materialist philosophy? Which, by the way, aren't even true anymore, because if you go down far enough into material reality, now we know you hit a realm that's so bizarre that we can't even comprehend it. And, it, which has, and it, there's implications of that bizarreness that we can't comprehend. So I would say we will develop a materialist philosophy of consciousness eventually, but it won't be using the same material that we use now, right? So I think, and it probably comes as a great relief to many of us, that he does acknowledge the validity, in a sense, of quote-unquote materialist science. Um, but although he does seem to have a certain disdain for it, or at least a disdain for considering it, quote-unquote, true from his perspective, because ethically, he's wary 
of the uses and implications of materialist science. So if, if I just interject, yeah. if I understand correctly, you're talking about there's there in, let's say, the industrialized north in a, in a society that relies on scientific analysis to to make it, make it uh, to establish the fundamental bases on which the, the, society, the rest of the society is predicated. Yeah. There are certain assumptions about what is real versus what is not real. What is mm -hmm. what is actually out there? If there's a well, but, there's well, a distinction between subject, subject right? Well, but e but on. even there, there's an implicit assumption that's what's out there in objective space is what's real. Okay. Well, but the problem with that is is that that's an assumption about reality. Now, it's obviously a powerful assumption, but here's another way of looking at the Darwinian problem, as far as I can tell. So, part of the reason that the Darwinians insist that random mutation is the source of continual, it's not progress, continual survival, is that the underlying environment changes and it changes unpredictably by, by, by its essential nature. It's unpredictable. Thus, if it's unpredictable, only random transformation can keep up with it. A lot of random transformation. Hopefully, the randomness of the environmental change will be matched by the randomness of the genetic change. Okay. So what that means in part is that the environment, so to speak, is finally incomprehensible because you can't predict it. Okay. So that means that a limited creature that's established itself by Darwinian means can't have access to the truth. They can only have access to sufficient truth. And sufficient truth is the truth that allows you to survive and reproduce. And from a Darwinian perspective, there isn't any truth past that. So I don't think Dawkins is a Darwinian. I think he's a Newtonian because he believes that there is truth. So this is where I have some of the same objections that I did last time. And I don't think he is, but it, it would be almost understandable if someone was to feel like they frustrated or feeling like they thought he was intentionally trying to confuse the issue. Instead of clearly drawing a line between scientific facts and his Darwinian notion of truth as being what is conducive to survival or well-being is true and what isn't is untrue. Um, it almost seems like he's muddying the waters and it almost seems like he's making the outrageous claim that things aren't factually, empirically, scientifically true if they don't meet his criteria for Darwinian truth. And to be honest, I'm still not sure uh, whether or not that's the case. Uh, it, it almost seems that way at times. The Darwinians don't believe that. The Darwinians say, no, there's enough truth to keep you alive and have you survive. And that's all. And eventually all that's going to go too, because, you know, 99.5% of all species are extinct. And that seems a little strange or confusing to me too, right there. He's quick to embrace the scientific notion that 
the majority of species uh, that have ever existed are extinct, which is a biological, hard scientific assertion, and yet seems skeptical whether or not certain scientific claims or facts are true from his quote-unquote Darwinian point of view, because something's only true if it's useful or conducive to survival, which seems like absolute madness. But from his point of view, if practically everything is subjective, then maybe what is true or the definition of truth is more elastic than we like to believe when coming from the reductionist materialist point of view. Very confusing. And I'm still not 100% certain where he draws a distinction between scientific facts and his Darwinian notion of truth. Can they coexist or overlap? Does his Darwinian notion of truth cancel out quote-unquote scientific fact if it isn't conducive to survival? I don't know. That's an amazing uh, point, if I understand it correctly. Look, the American pragmatists figured this out in the late 1800s. Exactly. This reminds me of pragmatist philosophy specifically, which I have a soft spot for. Yeah. So, I mean, it speaks to me directly, but I, I'm thinking about other people who, who I know at the university or just in my life. If they hear this, they would just say, what? Like, so it, it's as if we're living in two different worlds at the same time. We sense, are. In the sense that we, we've internalized uh, the evolutionary mindset for a large part and parcel of, of, of how we understand reality. But at the same time, we hold on to this notion of truth as beyond our subjective experience out there, and we're accessing right. it directly when we conduct these experiences. Right, right. This is just true. Right. Well, so, well, part of the problem, too, is, is that because, because um, science is reductionistic, whenever you me measure something extremely accurately, there's a whole bunch of other things you're not measuring. And your assumption is that the knowledge gained by that precision isn't undone by the dismissal of everything else. Well, is that a valid claim? It depends on what your preconditions are for determining validity. Like, automobiles get you from point A to point B. You might say, well, that's their fundamental purpose. That's what they were designed to do. But I could say, well, no, it turns out that their fundamental consequence, if not purpose, is the complete transformation of cities, the demolition of the rural communities, and the destruction of the atmosphere. It's like, oh, we left something out. Yeah, you left something out. So, so I think if a truth drives you insane, it's not a truth. There's something wrong with it. That's like a definition. But, but I think it's a definition that's grounded in Darwinian thinking. And, and this kind of reminds me where we started out, where, you know, let's say the knowledge of your own mortality, the knowledge that you're going to die someday, and there may very well not be a God or an afterlife. That could essentially drive someone insane, in, in, in a sense, or at least make them quite, quite miserable and despairing. Um, and yet that doesn't mean that 
that isn't that conclusion isn't true or at least logical or rational in a sense but maybe it does mean it's not true coming from his darwinian definition of truth or according to his darwinian definition of truth i almost wish someone would create a new linguistic tool set you know to help with this distinction between what we what most people probably the common man and materialist scientists mean when they say truth and what so-called Darwinian thinkers and pragmatist philosophers mean when they say truth. I wish someone would come up with um, a new word or two that would help clear up and avoid some of this confusion. I think what I think about religion is a very Dar Darwinian. I think religion is an evolved, it's evolved knowledge. And it's knowledge about action. And the world is made out of action, so, especially the human world. And so you can't say, well, that's not real. It's like, that's wrong. It's real. It's not something you can easily reduce to causal relationships between the fundamental building blocks of matter. But not only is it real, everyone acts like it's real. And then I would say, well, I don't care what people say about what they think about what's real. I care about how they act, because that actually shows what they really believe. So, and whatever their rational mind is computing and, and you know, chattering about on the surface, it's like, who cares about that? They're just possessed by ideas. You know, they may, they may be defenders of the ideas too, but that doesn't mean they believe them. You know, depending on how you define belief. Right. Okay. So this is this is getting to the to the crux of it. I think and it will be a good launching point for the rest of the discussion. So we're talking here about truth, not a reinterpretation of truth from an, an objectivist, positivist, scientific perspective, which we've inherited from the rationalist era. You're saying well, it's a return to the original conceptions of truth. Right. Along with the American pragmatists, and in light of. Of Darwinian insight into what life yeah. is. Well, you know, the thing about the pragmatists, like I said, as soon as Darwin published The Origin of Species, they recognized that the theory of evolution was pragmatic. They got it like right now. They were very excited about it. So, and they, they got excited about it because the Darwinian claim is things are always true enough, and that's it. And, and it isn't, in some sense, even because you lack knowledge, it's because you couldn't have the knowledge even hypothetically, without running a simulation as complicated as the world itself. And even then, it wouldn't turn out the same way. Okay, so I'm past the hour mark, and I'm going to keep going. Here's the next clip. I think it's really important to drive home this notion of right and truth you're talking about here as in terms of action. What is the right action? Because action is essentially, is, is almost the unit of truth that you're, mm -hmm. that you're hypothesizing based on. Yeah, right? yeah. But for but for most people, I think when they hear the word truth, especially people in academia or people you know who are involved in, in the sciences in any way, they think of something very different. Yes, they, of, they, of course. And their truth is representational. Right. So yeah. Can you elaborate maybe on this? See, that's also that's also partly why the Catholic Church historically has been so put off by the rational intellect. You know, like people like Dawkins say, well, you know, yeah, they went after Galileo because he was undermining their superstitions. It's like, yeah, 
partly right. The other part was Seth, like the figure of evil throughout history, is always the hyper-rational intellect. And the reason for that is the intellect is God's highest angel, so that's Lucifer, and it falls in love with its own creations. It likes to make totalities out of its own creation. Once there's a totality, there's no room for the transcendent, there's no God. That's Satan's error, by the way. And everything immediately turns into hell. Now, you see, that was all put together particularly well by Milton. And Milton was a visionary. And so at this point, some of you might be going, what the hell did he finally fall off the deep end? And part of it, in, in fairness to Peterson, is due to my editing. Prior to that, he went on a long spiel talking about, or is it spiel? Spiel? Can you hear my chihuahua snoring in the background? Talking about the you know the value of uh, or the importance of mythology and symbolism so he jumps right from galileo to seth uh seth is a version of uh or a variant of the name set set being um the quote unquote evil deity in egyptian mythology um you have Osiris, essentially the patriarchal figure, the, the king of the gods, the king of the underworld. Uh, his evil brother, Seth, tore him to pieces. Um, Osiris's wife, Isis, uh, puts him back together. And their son, Horus, um, you know, avenges his father and does battle with his evil uncle, Seth, or Set. But in a weird way, and hopefully I'm not being unfair, it almost sounds like he's using the archetype of uh, of Set as um, evil, being the rational or symbolizing the rational intellect as a justification for the persecution of Galileo. Uh, maybe that's not what he's saying. Maybe he's just saying that's a partial explanation that organized religion fares the fears the rational intellect because it has some kind of archetypal association with uh the sinister or evil or with uh you know uh lucifer or something like that i, I don't know i'm trying man i'm trying it almost reminds me i'm a big joseph campbell fan and i think um peterson is as well i remember Joseph Campbell, who was a heavy influence on George Lucas, talking about Darth Vader, uh, you know, as um, almost a symbol for the cold, rational intellect, you know, for intellect without a positive counterbalance or whatever, um, that Vader was this kind of cold, mechanical man almost kind of pure intellect without i don't know without maybe um heart or higher emotions or better angels to offset it or whatever but let's see i think i have uh, one last clip here i think it's a short one well then go ahead but i think that's a, not a good definition of truth and that's where our our disagreement really lies you have your definition and i have my definition i think my definition is darwinian so you have to contend with that if you're a scientist. Well, that didn't really accomplish much. That was basically just like an encapsulation of what we had already been discussing for the majority of the show. 
Um, but I want to touch on Peterson's views on religion a little more because I disagree with him in some ways and, and I actually like uh, some of what he has to say or his point of view as well. So like myself, he places a lot of value on religious or mythological symbolism. Um, unlike myself, I, I think he kind of blurs the line sometimes between what's real and what's metaphorical. For instance, I think he was talking about Hurricane Katrina and he was talking about well, he was comparing Hurricane Katrina to instances in the Old Testament where God kind of had to humble the um, the Israelites. You know, it was this kind of formulaic repetition where we see the Israelites start to kind of maybe become prideful, too big for their britches. God sends a prophet. The prophet is ignored or shunned or whatever, and then God lays the smack down. And uh, he was kind of drawing a, a comparison between that and Hurricane Katrina, saying, what caused Hurricane Katrina? Um, and he said, corruption. Well, at least that's what caused the flooding, saying that everyone knew that there should have been better prevention in place, you know, stronger dams, etc., um, and yet no one did anything about it. And then this awful storm came. And so, um, Hurricane Katrina was almost a punishment for man's indifference or hubris or, uh, corruption or whatever. And it's like, okay, I can see that. I like applying, I like applying symbolism to real situations in an attempt to try to see what we can learn about human nature or, you know, using it, using ancient myths as cautionary tales and how can we avoid doing the same thing again in the future or how can we better ourselves when we look at ourselves or a situation through kind of mythical or symbolic lenses. Um, but the, I'm not a scientist, but so to speak, the rational scientist in me says, okay, but that only goes so far. At some point, symbolism, symbolism, and reality is reality. And Peterson goes on to say something about, um, well, yeah, then you, you know, people might say that, well, that's just metaphor and it's not actually God laying the smack down, you know, for Hurricane Katrina. And he says something to the effect of, well, don't be so sure, you know, and which, you know, I don't agree with that. I mean, I can't know with 100% certainty that there isn't some higher power going around smiting everyone, but, uh, or smacking mankind on the snout when it gets too uh, big for its britches collectively. But, I do know that my own moral sense tells me that what kind, you know, would make me question what kind of God is that? What kind of deity is that? What kind of God would punish the innocent or even if the not so innocent, if they're still, you know, his children, his creation with a horrifying natural disaster just to teach them a lesson? What, what the hell kind of deity is that? I don't see 
the morality in that symbolically or otherwise. Um, And then he was talking about heaven and hell. And he was talking about how hell or the underworld in a sense is here on earth. You know, when you see homeless people who are maybe in some kind of mental or emotional anguish, maybe, you know, they're wrestling with severe mental illness. They're living on the street, no roof over their head. They're in hell. They're in the underworld. Uh, And we pass them by because we want no part of the underworld. You know what I mean? And uh, symbolically, once again, I I see that and it resonates with me. It's it's a poignant uh, analogy in a sense. Um, But he kind of blurs the line between reality and the metaphorical, almost like he's saying that really is hell. That's a slice of space time, you know? And I'm like divided on that. If you want to say metaphorically that being in a place of intense emotional or mental suffering or physical suffering is hell, in a sense it is hell, yeah. Um, and it reminds me of, I forget which chapter and verse it is, but doesn't Jesus say, and I think he might, echo a similar sentiment in one of the Gnostic Gospels, something about the kingdom of God is spread out on the earth, but men do not see it. And in that sense, at least metaphorically, heaven is on earth as well, which I think is also true. Um, We are capable of achieving um, or experiencing both horrific, wretched, anguish states, and we're also capable of experiencing wonderful, ecstatic, blissful states. So metaphorically speaking, yes, heaven and hell are on the earth. One thing we both agreed with is uh, Sartre. Sartre, um, he was talking about how he took issue with Sartre's famous quote, hell is other people. And he almost said something to what I've always thought, which is, yeah, in a sense, hell is other people. Hell is also yourself, but also heaven is other people and heaven is also, you know, within yourself. Some of the most probably hellish experiences or unpleasant experiences are related to other people, either what we're subjected to by other people uh, because we're worrying too much what other people think of us, we're social animals, But at the same time, I'm speaking for myself, some of the best, probably the best experiences of my life have been with other people, you know, so there's that. Um, But with that, I'll probably call this episode uh, a wrap. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, To be honest, I think the first two paragraphs of this episode were scripted. The rest was totally off the cuff, as you can probably tell by the ums and ahs and um, maybe uh, my imperfect uh, language. Um, So you guys know the drill, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. You can subscribe via iTunes. You can support the show monetarily either by using the PayPal widget at the Weekend Out Podbean page, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, podbean.com. Or you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month if you uh you know like what I'm doing here. Uh all right, people, brothers and sisters, until uh next week. Mm-hmm.